America's defeat in Afghanistan has provoked an imperial crisis. This imperial crisis is not just a geostrategic issue. It is a crisis of the ideas driving the empire, American culture, society and politics, its core belief that it is the exceptional nation. In Kabul, America unwittingly surrendered not only as occupier of Afghanistan, but its claim to be leader of the free world. Will Afghanistan teach America to be humble again? Or should I say, at last? That is the question for the Burning Archive today. I am Jeff Rich. I am a writer, historian, podcaster, poet, and very minor government official. And welcome to the Burning Archive, the podcast about all things history and culture, where the past is never dead. The past is not even past, and where by thinking about the past, we try to live better in the present. And this is podcast episode 17, a letter to America. Carl Jung, the eminent psychologist, used to say in the wake of uh, Hiroshima and the threat of nuclear war that the fate of the world hangs on a thin thread, the psyche of humanity. And in the wake of the fall of Kabul, falling in an afternoon, I must say I am very worried about the psyche of the American mind. Years of political polarisation, amplified, incited by 20 months of pandemic fear, growing cultural revolution, or at least a cultural revolt, let's say, has now been delivered a shock of military defeat and diplomatic humiliation. After the defeat comes the shockwave in the culture. And just to give you an example of that, let me quote the former New York Times journalist Barry Weiss, who recently established a podcast after leaving the New York Times and um, in sort of protest against its, I guess, internal censorship. Barry Weiss in her recent podcast, and Barry Weiss is pretty much, uh, I guess, uh, not a hard liberal, but like a radical liberal, but a centrist sort of liberal person, as in American sense of liberals, you know, a, a centrist progressive. Barry Weiss in her recent podcast said this, as she has not been so upset by a political event in her living memory and that she has this unshakable feeling that we, as in America, are rudderless. There's no one in the driver's seat, no adult giving us a plan for how we can avoid decline. She must have been listening to the show. Why do so many smart, smart people tell me we're not only in decline, but that decline is inevitable? And why have the people in charge of this country so lost the plot? It's a fantastic uh, episode of the podcast, this one, of Barry Weiss's podcast. I think it's called Honestly with Barry Weiss. And she has on the historian Neil Ferguson. 
and they talk about both that issue, specifically in relationship to, I guess, the quality of political leadership in America and the pandemic and the defeat in Afghanistan. And it actually brings together quite a few of the themes of this podcast, the Burning Archive podcast, about imperial rivalry and political decay and social fragmentation and cultural decay. So do go and check it out. It's a really great podcast and particularly interesting. But for me, Barry Weiss is a bit of a emblematic intellect, I guess, that indicates just how deep the shock to the American mind has been, to the American psyche has been, of the defeat in Afghanistan. And today on the podcast, on the Burning Archive podcast, we are looking as in I am looking at how America is responding to its defeat in Afghanistan. Last week I discussed the rise of Eurasia in the wake of the American defeat, and this week we're talking about the domestic response in America. And sadly we're going to discover that the Afghans are already forgotten, and that for the Americans it's all about them. And... That's a little bit troubling for the rest of the world. So just signposting, this is my fourth podcast now. Or is it, in fact, let me count that, one, two, three. Yes, this is my fourth podcast on Afghanistan. In episode 14, I talked about some immediate takes just in the wake of the events in Kabul. In episode 15, I talked about the grand strategy of the Anglo-American empires that drove the occupation of Afghanistan. And last time, in episode 16, I talked about the response of the neighbours of Afghanistan and the great states of Eurasia, particularly Russia and China, to the uh, situation in Afghanistan. But this week, I'm going to talk about America's response. And first of all, I'm going to ask, well, it looks pretty incompetent, but was there a method in the madness? What was the actual rationale, I guess? if that's apparent in how events unfolded. And then I'm going to talk about how that, how the uh, fall of Kabul has led America, has led to a, you know, a shockwave, an emotional uh, upheaval in America and its sense of who it is. I'm going to talk about how that is a bit of an imperial identity crisis that's threatening its sense of purpose and making it question its leadership and do a bit of a tour of the range of American responses, some of which I do find across the political spectrum of America uh, a little bit troubling, particularly in this little remote corner of the world on the coastal periphery of Eurasia uh, in a country that is quite dependent for its security at the moment, at least, on America. And then finally, I'm going to have a little letter to America, my own little plea for America to stay sane and get humble. Okay, so just some quick framing comments before we get into all of that. First of all, I'm doing this on the 10th of September, Australian time, and I think we've just got the news in the last day or two that the Taliban, with assistance, I believe, from Pakistan, have defeated the remaining resistance in the Panjshir Valley. The Taliban have announced a interim government, which 
appears to be largely, I guess, hardliners and is not the kind of inclusive government uh, many uh, countries have been asking them to do and is a bit of a concern. And we're also actually on the eve of 9-11. So it's a bit of a... um, bit risky perhaps to be doing this now Um, but it's interesting in a way that these events are occurring around about the 20th anniversary of 9-11 because it is I think magnifying that debate within America around its sense of purpose and next week I believe Anthony Blinken's going to be testifying to the Senate of Foreign Affairs Committee on the whole uh, Afghanistan withdrawal so it will be quite interesting to see what the range of political responses to that uh, testimony is. Okay, so let's go into our first topic then, which is, was there a method in the madness? What was the rationale for the Afghanistan withdrawal? And perhaps to introduce that discussion, let's hear indeed from the President of the United States in his recent address to the nation, explaining some of the thinking behind the change in American foreign policy demonstrated in the recent withdrawal from Afghanistan. And here's a critical thing to understand. The world is changing. We're engaged in a serious competition with China. We're dealing with the challenges on multiple fronts with Russia. We're confronted with cyber attacks and nuclear proliferation. We have to shore up America's competitiveness to meet these new challenges in the competition for the 21st century. And we can do both. Fight terrorism, and take on new threats that are here now and will continue to be here in the future. And there's nothing China or Russia would rather have, would want more in this competition in the United States to be bogged down another decade in Afghanistan. As we turn the page on the foreign policy that has guided our our nation the last two decades, we've got to learn from our mistakes. To me, there are two that are paramount. First, we must set missions with clear, achievable goals, not ones we'll never reach. And second, we must stay clearly focused on the fundamental national security interest of the United States of America. This decision about Afghanistan is not just about Afghanistan. It's about ending an era of major military operations to remake other countries. So there are a couple of things I think I'd just emphasise in that little uh, clip from his recent uh, speech, his address to the nation on the situation in Afghanistan. First of all is this sense that the world is changing and America needs to gear up for a different kind of what he called a competition for the 21st century. 
it's a somewhat insecure sort of message, but it's also a message where he's seeking uh, still to retain that dominance, not just, you know, protecting the national interest, but competing for the century. The second thing is his phrase about nothing China or Russia would uh, like more than being bogged down, uh, America being bogged down in Afghanistan for another two decades. And of course, you might recall in my episode on the sort of driving geo strategy of of uh, American policy in Afghanistan or in Eurasia was uh, part of Zbigniew Brzezinski's, Jimmy Carter's national security advisor uh, in the late 1970s, who who became a you know a really a dominant figure intellectually in American foreign policy and still has, uh, I guess, influence and ears. Part of his thinking was to actually make the Soviet Union bog down in Afghanistan. So I do wonder if part of the thinking from Joe Biden is to somehow just get the hell out of Afghanistan and and suck China and Russia into the vacuum created by that. Then finally, there's this sense of turning the page on foreign policy, like a clear sense that there's a change in approach in American foreign policy. And the phrase towards the end was about major military operations to change other nations. And there's been a lot of emphasis on the change other nations, the end to nation building and all that kind of thing in response to Biden's speech. But I think the other aspect of that is the de-emphasising, the reducing of the stress on military operations, a greater focus on diplomacy and, I guess, cultural influence, political influence, rather than military power. And this is consistent with Biden's articulation of a foreign policy for the middle class. Um, And in a recent uh, Washington Post article, the American sort of international relations specialist Charles Kupchan, who also you can read his article over at the Council of Foreign Relations, the sort of, I guess, the establishment thinking centre for American foreign policy. He says... Quitting Afghanistan will also redound to the benefit of U.S. power and position because it is part of Biden's broader effort to rebuild the domestic sources of American strength. Biden's foreign policy for the middle class means in part spending time and money fixing problems at home rather than in Afghanistan, one of the main reasons that ending the U.S. mission there enjoyed overwhelming public support and this theme that's part of what it is but it's also about a conscious effort to i think the phrase is to lead with their diplomacy to to focus less on military affairs and more on diplomacy and this has been articulated indeed in the longer telegram which i think i spoke about in one of my early Podcast. It was a a um, about a seventy page uh, document that 
was a, a call back to a American diplomat, George Kennan, who wrote a long telegram about how to contain the Soviet Union and to defeat the Soviet Union in the late 1940s. And this longer telegram was published anonymously and it talked about the need to refocus American foreign policy on China and to refocus it on diplomacy allies. And there's this particular passage within that uh, longer telegram, which I think is revealing. It says, Allies are a great advantage. Such an approach will require an unprecedented level of US national and international policy coordination. It will require the rebuilding of the US Foreign Service and US aid. It will require the complete integration, the complete integration of the efforts of the Departments of State, Defence, Treasury and Commerce and the US and the intelligence community. I'll just skip out some of the agencies there. This will mean that future national security advisers, the current national security advisor is Jake Sullivan, augmented with the best and brightest high-level support staff, in brackets, will need to be individually responsible for full coordination and final execution of the United States' long-term China strategy. Not apparently the Foreign Minister, Secretary of State, but the National Security Advisor. And the reason I emphasise this in particular is Jake Sullivan is a key Biden advisor, a National Security Advisor, and I think in some of the materials Jake Sullivan produced some time ago, you can hear perhaps some of the rationale uh, around both the fact that America did withdraw from Afghanistan and perhaps also how it was done. Sullivan is about 40-ish. He's described by his uh, promoters as a once-in-a-generation intellect. And over at the Atlantic Council, and I'll give uh, a link to this particular piece, there's a discussion about how he, uh, at the time of his appointment, was really saying that Biden's foreign policy starts at home and focuses on repairing alliances, and in particular that it's going to rebalance civilian and military methods. That same theme of, that Biden spoke about in his speech about uh, less focus on military operations. Sullivan there said uh, the US foreign policy establishment needs to rethink the way it pursues its objectives. We have got to rebalance our national security toolkit in a way that elevates diplomacy and the civilian tools of power over the use and deployment of military force, he stressed. Uh, adding that a general drawdown of US military forces from regions such as the Middle East and South Asia will be replaced with a greater emphasis on economic and diplomatic engagement. And moreover, in a, in a piece in Foreign Affairs in 2020, he says diplomacy can succeed where military forces failed. In an interview, he said that once you have a civil conflict in one of these countries, like Afghanistan, the US is not in a great position to produce a positive outcome. Indeed, he actually referred back to the US intervention 
in Yugoslavia, or maybe it was Kosovo, in the 1990s, which both he and Joe Biden were involved in, as an example of how one should do these things, having modest diplomatic goals, and that would be a better model, that one should achieve these uh, geostrategic aims with diplomats, not with soldiers. Then again in 2019 in the Atlantic, in 2019 in the Atlantic, Jake Sullivan also wrote an article called American Exceptionalism Reclaimed, uh, which talked about reclaiming and renewing American foreign policy as a response to Trump's America First policy, but that it wasn't, it was a restatement of American exceptionalism that said, in his argument, uh, that America wasn't better, but, and it's a big but, it had a unique capacity distinct from any other major power that allow us, at our best, to contribute to national and global common interest. Which, frankly, just sounds like a restatement of the indispensable nation argument of uh, Madeleine Albright and others. And so it's about putting those attributes to service and that what foreign policy is for is that we can't just be number one, but we have to defend the American way of life and we need international cooperation to be addressed. I have this little theory um, because one of the, I guess, guessing games on the internet is who, who was the anonymous author of the longer telegram and my theory having looked into this a little bit over the last couple of weeks is that it probably was Jake Sullivan he fits the right qualities uh, a bit of an intellectual quite young with a bit of an eye to his long-term reputation and he also is quoted in quite a few places on uh video interviews and in uh, uh, published interviews over quite a few years, been quite intrigued and fascinated, in fact, with George Kennan. Anyhow, that's a bit of a diversion, but I think in Jake Sullivan's general arguments, you can see some of the ideas that I think drove, that provided the method and the madness of the American retreat. It's to some degree also confirmed, I think, in a recent piece, a very recent piece by Adam Tooze in The New Statesman, uh, which is called The New Age of American Power, it was subtitled, Despite Forecasts of Decline Following the Afghanistan Withdrawal, the US Military is Planning Another Century of Global Domination, which really sort of makes the case that, hey, it's all fine, it's all fine, America's got this... And Tooze actually makes the comment that the both the uh, withdrawal and the nature of the withdrawal from Afghanistan was very much driven uh, by Biden and his key political appointments, including Jake Sullivan, as a assertion of authority over the military. Diplomatic methods, not military methods. He says there, if Biden had extended the timetable, Trump agreed in his talks with the Taliban, it would have been the US military that he was surrendering to. 
but this time it was the generals who were steamrolled. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, was simply overridden by civilian officials, the Defence Secretary Lloyd Austin, the Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, and the National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. For better or worse, the withdrawal is a dramatic assertion of Biden's authority. I think it is Jake Sullivan's strategy. I'm not convinced Joe Biden is such an intellectual as Jake Sullivan. Neil Ferguson described described it as it describes Joe Biden in that podcast with Barry Weiss as a profoundly cynical politician who was really doing it for the optics of uh, getting a you know I'm the one who ended the war by. Uh, 9-11, but I think he was working with, enabling and smitten by a perhaps overly intellectualised intelligence community who believed they could execute this with diplomacy and not with military force. They could end a war with the diplomats, not with the soldiers. How has the defeat led America to a shockwave for the American mind? Despite what Joe Biden says, that it was an extraordinary success, despite the confident uh, intellectualising of Jake Sullivan, things don't seem to have worked out to plan. The most popular cable news host on in America, Tucker Carlson, who is, I guess, conservative, but is also probably the most articulate and intellectually creative, maybe, talk show host on American television. He mocks Jake Sullivan as a 40-year-old who's never run anything. And there's certainly some speculation in the press that Jake Sullivan could be sacrificed to save Joe Biden's reputation. Unlikely. But the defeat has certainly led to a bit of a shockwave and a real sense of failure. Not just failure, but a sense of the elites deceiving America for many, many years. To give you a flavour of this, here is a recent clip from one of Tucker Carlson's uh, monologues that start his show. So lying to the rest of us about what is actually happening with our troops and our money in our name in foreign countries, that has been the philosophy of this country's military established for 20 years. It's also the philosophy of every high-ranking official in the Biden administration. Project the illusion of progress even when it's clear we're failing. Project the illusion of progress even while it's clear we're failing. Indeed, I wrote a blog post over at my blog, theburningarchive.com, called called The Fall of the American Empire's Potemkin Province, like a Potemkin village, which I explain over there, and where I say that today we are learning that this old propaganda trick of a Potemkin village, more an art of self-delusion than mass deceit, has been used by the USA for 20 years in Afghanistan. 
all the command centres, green zones, high-tech military bases, civilian contractors, warlord palaces and occasional surges created a Potemkin province that assured the leaders they could believe in the illusion of geostrategic control at the summit of Central Asia, that they could believe they were pursuing a worthy cause. So uh, do go and check it out if you have a moment. So Tucker Carlson puts it in fine polemical terms, but there's also an interview with a US senator, I think, Mike Gallagher, who is a former Afghan veteran, maybe a Marine, I'm not sure, who also sums up this sense of catastrophic failure and its impact on America's sense of its own place in the world. Uh, rather excellently in just 70 seconds. So let me just play that clip for you before discussing some more of the issues. I think even for the proponents of withdrawal, and I myself wanted us to keep a small counterterrorism force and keep Bagram as a way of projecting power, took against China over the long term. But even if you disagree with that, there was a way to do this that wasn't such a humiliating fiasco. And obviously, surrendering Bagram and pulling out military assets before we had gotten every American citizen out of the country will go down as one of the worst foreign policy mistakes in the history of United States foreign policy. And so this president, to add insult to injury, has been lying to the American people for two weeks. He said Al-Qaeda has been decimated in Afghanistan. Not true. He said our allies didn't have concerns with the way in which this has been conducted. Not true. He said Americans weren't having trouble getting to the airport. Well, obviously, we just left hundreds, if not thousands of them behind. So that was a massive lie. The foundation of our foreign policy has always been peace through strength. Well, the Biden doctrine is to sow chaos through weakness, and weakness invites aggression. And I fear we've only begun to see the aggression from our adversaries internationally because of this absolute disaster. And that was extraordinarily succinct and, well, I guess in some ways also factual assessment of what has happened. I think also what we're hearing in a lot of the American dialogue is just some of these historical comparisons too to express this sense of national humiliation. So there's the com comparisons with the fall of Saigon in 1974. There's also the comparisons with the Iranian hostage crisis in, I think, 1979, I think. Yes, I think it was 1979. So following the Iranian revolution, a large number of Americans were held hostage, I think, inside the U.S. Embassy, and um, the President Carter was humiliated by the refusal of the new revolutionary Islamic Republic of Iran refusing to play ball with America. And there's also this sense of the fear of a repeat of September 11, and more than that also the, the, the futility of the effort to take revenge for September 11. And the language describing the withdrawal from Afghanistan, similarly, without evaluating the claims made in it, it is just quite astonishing. Absolute failures, worst foreign policy disaster ever, incompetence, chaos, decadence, stupidity, failure... There have been letters from former military people calling for the resignation of the top tier of the American military as well as political figures. There have actually been 
American soldiers who've who've um, resigned. There's been a, a a big sort of resigned in protest, so to speak, at upper command. There have been quite a significant response from a lot of the veterans, uh, some of whom feel a bit triggered by the uh, the this failure and feel betrayed. Um, you know, Biden's been uh, heckled in public for leaving people behind, and of course, there's the as always in America, there's the usual calls for the president to be impeached. It's national addiction over there, almost as bad as opiates. And again, we see some really strong emotions driving this response. This sense of betrayal, dishonour, surrender, shame. Very few object to the exit as such, but there are a few who do object to the exit, of course. America's uh, national security, neocons and whatnot, John Bolton. But the manner and the consequences of the exit have really shocked America. It's brought out, exacerbated by a response to some of the grieving families. But like, for example, in a uh, article in The Atlantic by the journalist George Packer, who again is a liberal, uh, George Packer, who is a, a sort of a member of a political family in America, a progressive, a... Um, he's written a, an enormous biography of the diplomat Richard Holbrook, who was heavily involved in uh, Afghanistan. He writes in this recent piece in The Atlantic that there's plenty of blame to go around for the 20-year-old debacle in Afghanistan, enough to fill a library of books. Perhaps the effort to rebuild the country was doomed from the start, but our abandonment of the Afghans who helped us, counted on us, stake their lives on us, is a final gratuitous shame that we could have avoided. The Biden administration failed to heed the warnings on Afghanistan, failed to act with urgency, and its failure has left tens of thousands of Afghans to a terrible fate. This betrayal will live in infamy. The burden of shame falls on President Joe Biden. People are also so deeply emotional language. I guess that profound sense of shame, a powerful driving emotion. and uh, But people are also connecting it to a sense of national status and position in the world. James Cunningham, the former U.S. ambassador to Afghanistan, says that the damage to the security of the United States, our allies, and the region has been done. At, oh, sorry, enormous. Or the damage to, I think I've lost the verb out of this quote, but the damage to the security of the United States, our allies, and the region has been done, as has the damage to the credibility of U.S. leadership. And more anecdotally, the conservative writer Rod Dreyer uh, recalls an anecdote, uh, which again, let's just treat it as like an emblematic thing of what's going on in the culture over there in America at the moment. So he says, last night at dinner in Milan, I asked a friend of mine, a veteran Italian foreign correspondent, 
what he thought of the way America had handled its departure from Afghanistan. Quote, because America is a declining power, he said. You can't deny it now. No, you can't. There we go. Maybe I'll send uh, Rodrea my uh, podcast on Empire in Denial. In short, I think we're seeing a bit of an imperial identity crisis for America. So here we are. We, uh, this is really, I guess, topic number three in the podcast. So we've, we've covered what was the method in the madness of American strategy. So what um, Biden was thinking, what Jake Sullivan was thinking, what drove them to, to evacuate without the need for the military how the defeat has led to a shockwave for the American mind. And now I'm going to talk about the imperial identity crisis. Okay, let's again hear a little clip from Tucker Carlson as, again, a bit of an emblematic uh, spokesperson for what America is thinking. So you got to think, it takes a special kind of arrogance, we used to call this cultural imperialism, to imagine that other cultures want to ape your family structure, for example. Isn't it up to the Afghans what kind of families they want? No. We tried to impose our customs on them, and they hated it. I mean, that's one of the reasons the Taliban took over in a weekend. We hired people like Bahar Jalali and Ashraf Ghani to lead with our diplomacy. That's what Afghanistan looked like for the past 20 years. Meanwhile, we've been leading with our diplomacy. We have given billions of American military dollars worth of equipment to the Taliban. So one of the things that makes Tucker Carlson interesting, I think, is that he just doesn't spout talking points or the usual thing. But he's an incredibly thoughtful, um, I guess, journalist. But yeah, there you go. A special kind of arrogance. We used to call it cultural imperialism. Uh, no naive spouting of American exceptionalism there. There is that sense of doubt. Well, what's going on in our minds? Why exactly are we trying to uh, remake other nations, whether by military force or by leading with diplomacy? Certainly there are others who are defensive uh, and protective, I guess, of the... American withdrawal. There's a bit of an embarrassment from some people. There's a, a sense that, well, yes, but, you know, was there really any other way around it? And some people will give a bit of a over, like an embarrassed shuffle of their feet and talk about, well, we can't really be policemen of the world. Things happen. This is just a overdue strategic realignment. I guess what's really interesting is how so much of this uh, response actually pivots around the idea of primacy, the idea of American exceptionalism, and the uh, idea of the question of can America actually play a role in the world that is not hegemonic, that is not trying to export its culture to the rest of the world, that is not cultural imperialism. Again, let's go back to Barry Weiss, the, uh, in contrast to Tucker Carlson, a much more liberal uh, journalist, but again, a thoughtful and original thinker. Barry Weiss 
uh, in her recent podcast on Afghanistan the, with, with Neil Ferguson says, this is not really about Afghanistan, but about America and whether we still really believe in America as a country, the goodness of American power, whether America is worth defending or not. It is a deeper, more existential question. And we get this sense of questioning or disillusionment of the basic ideas of the goodness of American power in a couple of other places. So in the Wall Street Journal, a journalist, Daniel Plethka, writes, We Americans like to deceive ourselves. We want to believe there is a good war and a bad war. World War II was a good war, varnished with the patina of history. Vietnam was a bad war, its reality overridden by popular cultural narratives. Once in the decade after 9-11, Afghanistan was the good war and Iraq the bad war. A war of choice, not necessity. Now they are both bad. From a more right-wing perspective in the American mind, Pedro Gonzalez says... The American people and the tradition of self-government to which they still cling remain valiant, admirable and worth fighting for. But like the Roman veterans who laboured under the depredations of their callous elites, Americans are now groaning beneath the heel of heedless, heartless rulers who value nothing so much as their own self-gratification. To reframe the original question, is the regime, the real, not ideal, established political order, worthy of Americans' love and blood? Not today, but it should and still could be. Again, I'm not really saying, you know, these responses are right or wrong, although it really does trouble me that Barry Weiss says this isn't really about Afghanistan, it's about America. But anyhow, there you go strategic narcissism to give a sense of that sense of a shockwave the identity crisis that's happened so let's have a little look then at how people are responding to this Again, to give a bit of a sense of colour and flavour and movement to the nature of the debate in America. And look, I think there are some, before I go into some individual comments, I think there are some broad themes. Um, so among the people who are defending, I guess, the, the exit from uh, Afghanistan, you get various themes like this. So there some people see say, well, these are these are difficult times. The nation needs to rally around uh, the foreign policy and the intelligence community. Even hard to to end a war. It's always a challenging process of leaving an unwinnable war. Others will say, well, Joe Biden got things done. You know, he got it done. There. Are, Others who say, well, it would have all gone fine if it wasn't for those weak, unreliable allies, whether it's the Afghan army or Ashraf Ghani, the president who fled Afghanistan with uh, $160 million. 
Pakistan, that treacherous ally, or even NATO or the UK. There's been leaked memos blaming the terrorist attack at the Kabul airport on lax efforts by uh, England rather than America. Or it was just, you know, those lawless, ungovernable Afghans who led us down in our uh, aim of bringing democracy to them. And then there are the defenders of the uh, global empire faith. Um, people who say, well, this was a self-defeat. We didn't, we didn't have to end it this way. There are those who say we should never have left Afghanistan. We should have kept that garrison there. We should have accepted the burden, the American man's burden of the benefits of empire. There are others who say, well, the, the mission to remake Afghan society was worthwhile. It was a justifiable war of occupation uh, to liberate and uh, transform the society of Afghanistan. And then, so we have the defenders of the strategy, the defenders of the faith, the imperial faith, and then we have the betrayed. And, you know, those betrayed, you know, we've given a bit of airtime to some of those, so... You know, they say, well, this was an example of a test of will and we failed it. Or this is a a example of an incompetent ruling class. Or this is a what happens when elites and society uh, fight internally, are at war with themselves rather than defending their nation. There are others who say, well, this is exactly what our real enemy, China, wants or that this is the death and betrayal of American ideals, something rather like that um, quote from Pedro Gonzalez over at the American Mind, that the real, not the ideal established political order is worthy of Americans' love and blood. That veterans have laboured under the depredations of their callous elites. There's a very strong element of that over in America uh, at the moment, and especially amongst the more, I guess, populist um, uh, part of the country. But across all of this, there is this self-doubt about American exceptionalism and a sense of a historical moment of the end of empire. So Roger Kimball writes, Were I a betting man, I'd say there was every chance that future historians will look back at the great Afghan fumble of 2021, quite like that line, the great Afghan fumble of 2021, and say there, it was there and then, that the United States took a large public step toward its own diminishment much as historians now point to the disastrous battle of Adrianople in 378 AD as a turning point in the fortunes of the Roman Empire. Quite a late point in the uh, fortunes of the Roman Empire, Western Roman Empire, but um, again, there is that um, meme, let's say, or that theme of, of evoking... Uh, the fall of the Roman Empire and comparing America with Rome. And what 
worries me a little bit about how American um, political, cultural figures are responding to this defeat in Afghanistan is, you know, there's a lot of emotion to it and there's a, a lot of wild swings um, and it is threatening, I guess, a sense of their core identity as the exceptional nation and that can can go all sorts of uh, funny ways and can lead to imprudent decisions and perhaps, you know, I think there is an argument that what was worse than 9-11 was the response to 9-11 and I do hope so, you know, yes there was a terrible attack on the Twin Towers but did America really need to launch 20 years of war in response to that? A war on terror, an un, un, undefinable war on terror. So to give you a sense of this, these sort of wild swings, there are people who are who who say who question the exit decision and say, well, let's keep going with the endless wars. Um, like H.R. McMaster, the former national security advisor to Donald Trump and a former general who very much resisted Trump's efforts to exit Afghanistan, um, refers back to his own work on the dereliction of duty in Vietnam. And the strategic mistakes, and many of his comments are quite interesting about the strategic mistakes, but he, he refers to this problem of the avoiding Vietnam syndrome, that America has been too worried about avoiding another Vietnam to accept the responsibilities of uh, the responsibilities of its empire. Although, of course, he says America is not an empire. It's global leadership. Some uh, downplay and the extent to which this is really a threat to American leadership. Sort of downplay the sense in which, in the sense in which, the sense in which this was, you know, the great Afghan fumble. So Richard Haas says, "Well, yeah, it's not great, but let's just move on." Richard Haas is a very significant figure uh, at the Council of Foreign Relations. There are even some who are actually calling on American forces to go back in to Afghanistan, to go back in and take revenge and to take that Bagram Air Base back. So the Republican Senator Lindsey Graham has said the US will be redeploying troops into Afghanistan like we went back into Iraq and Syria because the Taliban will turn the conflict-ridden country into a safe haven for radical Islamists. They're going to give safe haven to Al-Qaeda, who has ambitions to drive us out of the Mideast writ large and attack us because of our way of life. We will be going back into Afghanistan like we went back into Iraq and Syria. Well, we'll see. Others say that it is, you know, a painful correction of course. So Suzanne Maloney at the Brookings Institute says Biden is right to prioritise the urgent challenges posed by great power competition, the spread of techno-authoritarianism, the climate crisis and other threats over sustaining a war that lost its purpose long ago. But his claims that America is back ring hollow against scenes of desperation as Afghans put 
who put their faith in us scramble for any exit opportunity while Biden remains silent and the catastrophe in Kabul undermines the central proposition of Biden's foreign policy that the US will champion values and allies. Our adversaries are watching and drawing their own conclusions about American will and capacity, just as they did before 9-11. So they're saying, mm, you know, it's a good idea to lead with diplomacy, but you got to muscle up as well. And again, again, that can, you know, um, shouting at a humiliated person to go and um, take revenge or to prove themselves, um, it can lead to terrible things. Some people cling to the idea or the agenda of social transformation or nation building. A journalist, Steve Cole, writes that it would be unfortunate if the lesson America draws from its Afghan debacle is that it should forswear large investments in human dignity and health in very poor countries. For both moral and practical reasons, the United States has cause to provide substantial humanitarian aid to troubled nations and even in a supporting role to strengthen their security, perhaps having fashioned a foreign policy, if it is not too much to hope, informed by a measure of humility and a capacity for self-reflection. And we'll come back to that theme of humility. Others conjure up a hostile world that will exploit American weakness. So uh, the historian Victor David Hansen, who's actually travelled in embedded with H.R. McMaster to Afghanistan and is a military historian, as well as a historian of the, the classics, um, the Peloponnesian War and stuff, um, writes, Our allies are concluding that the United States is not a bastion of sobriety and careful deliberation that takes its leadership of the free world seriously, but a mercurial, radical leftist country that in a second may self-immolate, as we did in the woke summer of 2020. And he conjures up fears of a disintegrating NATO and offensive actions by China, Russia and Iran. And again, you know, overrating threats and creating a sense of paranoia amongst a humiliated country can lead to dangerous, dangerous things. Some attack the globalism of the American elite with a shrill insular nationalism and a kind of resurgent American universalism expressed in populist language that focuses on China as the enemy, or even more bizarrely, that actually really argues that what America should really do now is take down the Chinese Communist Party, that it should engineer a regime change in China, a country of over a billion people, which is just, you know, might be a good idea, but it's hardly a, a, a sort of a modest, achievable aim. But those kind of responses are definitely, like, say, like Steve Bannon is sort of arguing for those kind of things. And, you know, the the China hawks in, in America has certainly grown in force in recent years. 
And, you know, this also has a... Bannon expresses that in a sort of shrill, insular, nationalist, populist language. But there are others who express it in a more apparently moderate, but really a a sort of the uh, flexing of the national security state, the progressive national security state. So in the New Statesman, uh, Adam Tooze, in that article I referred to, I think earlier, called The Remaking of American Power, writes this, the coincidence of the Taliban victory in Afghanistan with the 20th anniversary of 9-11 is painful. It's funny that it's described as a coincidence when, in fact, Joe Biden changed the withdrawal date to be 9-11 so that he could do a, like, you know, media event. But anyhow, let's put that aside. So the coincidence of that victory is painful, but it does nothing to put in question this shift. Far from exiting the world, the US security establishment is committing staggering resources to confronting what it takes to be its principal 21st century antagonist, China. The latest iteration of American militarism challenges not just the boundaries of technology, it also puts in question the basic forces that shape modern history. The US was raised to the status of a hyperpower not by the genius of its soldiers or the qualitative superiority of its weapons, but through its economic supremacy. Now, the ultimate goal of the Pentagon planners is to loosen that link between economic performance and military force. They aim to secure US military dominance even as the centrifugal effect of global economic growth reduces America's relative weight in the world economy. Ultra-advanced technology, not GDP, will be the decisive factor as Washington talks, T-O-R-Q-E-S, uh, talks as in as in using force to uh, rotate something. As Washington talks the sinews of power, the entire world will feel the effect. Be scared, the rest of the world, because America's got some secret plan to remain the dominant empire, even though it's just been humiliated. Others are responding to the response with a cry of despair about a crumbling, self-hating society. Ross uh, Douthat, D-O-U-T-H-A-T, I think in maybe the Washington Post or New York Times, um, in an article called American Empire in Retreat, writes, The American Imperium can't be toppled by the Taliban, but in our outer empire in Western Europe and East Asia, uh, glad to know, by the way, we're acknowledged as part of the uh, outer empire of the American Imperium. The, the, the lack of self-awareness of some of these journalists is just, of American intellectuals is just astonishing. But anyhow, perceived U.S., so the American, and blah, 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 in our outer empire, perceived U.S. weakness could accelerate developments that genuinely do threaten the American system as it has existed since 1945. It's all coming out now. From German-Russian Entente to Japanese rearmament to a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. Inevitably, those developments would affect the inner empire too, where a sense of accelerating imperial decline 
would bleed into all our domestic arguments, widen our already yawning ideological divides, encourage the feeling of crack-up and looming civil war. Which is why you can think, as I do, that it's a good thing that we finally ended our futile engagement in Afghanistan and still fear some of the possible consequences of the weakness and incompetence exposed in that retreat. Still others uh, imagine a kind of a stab in the back uh, from the American Empire in the 1920s in Germany. The sort of right-wing military-type conspiracies against the Weimar Republic were very much encouraged by this idea that Germany's defeat in World War I was not because they were losing the war, but because there was a stab in the back that actually um, prevented the soldiers doing their real job and winning the war. Uh, and the stab in the back, you know, was associated with, you know, decadent politicians or, you know, um, anti-Semitism or, um, you know, corrupt bankers or whatever. But um, the quite respected intellectual Brian Kennedy from the Claremont Institute has written this uh uh, a piece in the American mind which very much basically says that maybe the humiliation in Afghanistan was deliberate. So he writes, The exit from Afghanistan then appears designed to accomplish two things. First, to demoralize the American military and the American people. The second purpose of the Afghan debacle was to signal to the world that the United States has no interest in defending a liberal world order and that from here on out we will not defend either human freedom or our own self-interest, however bizarre that may sound. That we could have killed... Now, this is a highly respected, highly cultured uh, leader of a think tank in... a former leader of a think tank in America, that he says that we could have killed... Every last Afghan man, woman and child is quite obvious that we would have been justified in doing so, given that they harboured Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda seems less well appreciated. <laughs> I mean, that is actually a claim for national genocide. It is just an astonishing thing. But our credibility on the global stage, Brian Kennedy continues on, has now been eradicated and Americans will reasonably wonder whether our union can endure. Now is the time for men of goodwill to rise to the defence of the American experiment in free government. We should pray it is not too late. Wow, there you go. So again, I'm not endorsing any of these statements. I'm just explaining them to and giving a sense of what's the the various points in the spectrum in the American debate at the moment and where it's going. Others like Charles Kupchin sort of endorse Joe Biden's idea that the, the thing that China and Russia would most like is for America to be bogged down in Afghanistan and imagine the same thing happening to them. So Charles Kupchin says Beijing and Moscow are in for a rude awakening as the United States frees itself from the forever walls in the Middle East 
and puts China and Russia in its crosshairs. And this is an academic. In its crosshairs. But even as the United States keeps an eye on Afghanistan, its military withdrawal from the country will enable Washington to pivot its strategic focus from peripheral interests in the broader Middle East to primary interests in the Eurasian heartland without actually explaining what they really are. And then there's also this whole theme of of the need to refocus and harden opposition to the rise in Eurasia and doing it in the frame of democracy versus autocracy. Corey Sharka, who, or Sheikh, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce, pronounce her name, S-C-H-A-K-E, writes in Foreign Affairs. She's uh, at the American Enterprise Institute and is a former uh, McCain advisor. Um, and so she's very much like a neocon, let's say. So says about uh, the situation that it's hard to overstate the damage to US credibility wrecked by this fiasco. Biden's cynical self-justifications have not acknowledged the commitment of the other 36 countries with troops in Afghanistan, one of which was Australia, nor how Washington's accelerated abandonment of the country has made it harder for those countries to pull out safely and justify a mission to their publics. There you go. So they need to, <laughs> you know, Joe Biden needs to make sure that the political elites in the outer empire keep the public in line. Um, these countries have spent 20 years in Afghanistan, not primarily because they consider Afghanistan essential to their security, but because they consider the United States essential to their security. The disastrous withdrawal will make it harder for Washington to put together such coalitions in the future, and after the US surrender to the Taliban, it will be hard for anyone to take seriously the Biden administration's posturing about promoting human rights and defending democracy. And then there are a few who link the Afghanistan withdrawal to the, the linked imperial, social, political and cultural crises affecting America. And again, there is a, I guess he's a conservative thinker, Angelo Cotavilla, but he's a very striking, uh, interesting thinker who actually, I think, had some sort of role in the national security apparatus of America as well. So he's quite well informed and he has a pretty dark take on the on the political and social decay in America at the moment. And I'm just going to read a little bit from his a recent piece he had on the American mind as a way of just concluding this tour around American responses to the defeat in Afghanistan. So Angelo Cotabillo writes, It is not reasonable to expect foreigners to take seriously American statesmen who do not take seriously their own country's unity and interests. Euro-American Impotence in Europe has left Russia as the only power in the region that pursues what it considers its interests. Russia's Sergei Lavrov is probably the world's most perceptive 
diplomat today. We heard a bit uh, from him last week. The combination of US verbal provocations with military deployments that are practical surrenders leaves Poles, Bolts and Ukrainians in an all-too-familiar mind. Likewise, the American ruling class is helpless to check China's growing overlordship of Asia. The Japanese edge closer and closer to nuclear armament. Armament, the US strategy, in quote marks, scare quotes, toward China, namely the capacity to send a couple of aircraft carriers to its coast, has not changed in two generations. China's military build-up has created de facto control that is beyond our capacity to challenge. We may be grateful that China has not yet initiated a callous belly as in a cause of war, a justification for a war regarding Taiwan, that at best would remove all doubt of that and at worst plunge us into a losing war. Under the current corrupt leadership and bearing the legacy of two decades of ignorant wars, the US Army and Air Force can scarcely fight and the Navy is grossly maldeployed to the Persian Gulf and Arabian Sea while having given up bases in the Azores and Iceland. What could the US Navy do were China to try conquering Taiwan, issuing stern warnings while refraining from fortifying the island with serious missile defence is unserious. And let me just emphasise these last two sentences from this uh, excerpt from Angelo Cotabilla's piece from the American Mind. Serious geopolitical analysis, however, is beyond folks who can think only of denigrating their less sophisticated subjects. Fighting that domestic war of conquest consumes them. Until that is over, discussions of foreign affairs must remain theoretical. It's a very dark vision of an American elite at war with its own with its own people and uh, having lost the plot, even its army forgetting how to fight. So what do we make of this? And this is where we I might give my own little letter to America. Um, when I was growing up in the 1970s, there was a British journalist, Alastair Cook, who used to have a weekly, uh, like a 15-minute sort of little radio show called Letter from America, which I used to listen to uh, regularly. And I recently actually just picked out this little clip from YouTube of Alastair Cook speaking in 1973 uh, in the depths of America's uh, humiliation in Vietnam and its internal strife, race riots and all the rest of it within America about America being in decline. So just as a little break from my own voice and before I 
launch my own little letter to America. Let's just listen to the great Alastair Cook. A wise historian usually stops 20 or 30 years before his own time because, like the rest of us, he can't see the wood for the trees. But I have tried in this program to say something about American civilization today because what is fiercely in dispute between the communist and the non-communist nations is the quality and staying power of American civilization. Every other country scorns American materialism while striving to match it. Envy obviously has something to do with it, but there is a true basis for this debate. And it is whether America is in its ascendant or its decline. I myself think I recognize several of the symptoms that Edward Gibbon saw so acutely in the decline of Rome, which arise not from external enemies, but from inside the country itself. A love of show and luxury, a widening gap between the very rich and the very poor. The exercise of military might in places remote from the centers of power, an obsession with sex, freakishness in the arts masquerading as originality, and enthusiasm pretending to creativeness, and a general desire to live off the state, whether it's a junkie on welfare or a government-subsidized airline. In a word, the idea that Washington, Big Daddy, will provide. Yet, I have tried to show that the original institutions of this country still have great vitality. Much of the turmoil here springs from the energy of people who are trying to apply those institutions to forgotten minorities. Now, as for our rage to believe that we've found the secret of liberty in general permissiveness from the cradle on, I can only recall the saying of a wise Frenchman, liberty is the luxury of self-discipline. And historically, those peoples that did not discipline themselves had it thrust on them from the outside. That's why the usual cycle of great nations has been first a powerful tyranny broken by revolt, the introduction of liberty, the abuse of liberty and back to tyranny again. As I see it in this country, a land of the most persistent idealism and blandest cynicism, the race is on between its decadence and its vitality. So that clip was from 1973. And the race was on, perhaps, is the wrong way of putting it. I guess maybe there's always a, a tug of war between decadence and vitality in any culture, which we might, we don't necessarily need to, as I think I've addressed in some of my previous episodes on empires and decline. There's, you know, there's not just one story arc of uh, decline and fall. It's not just, America is not, a repetition of the fall of the Roman Empire, uh, it could just follow its own particular course. But perhaps it needs to uh, escape some of its own, the, the, the traps it's set for itself about its uh, ideas about itself as an indispensable nation, as the global empire that is not a global empire. And I feel perhaps the humiliation not only of the American military, but all the American intelligence community, the American
American political class and, in a way, the American journalistic world in the in its failure in Afghanistan may be a chance for America to uh, rethink its place in the world, to accept a more modest place in the world, and to to become a humble republic again. It does worry me, though, that so much of the talk in America is not um, about charting a course to uh, being, you know, one amongst many peers in a multipolar world, but for how it can retain its leadership of uh, democracy and the free world. So our friend Jake Sullivan says, what makes American foreign policy distinctive is that we are not neutral between autocrats and the people seeking basic human rights and dignity. We choose a side. And there is this drumbeat of a new Cold War between democracy and autocracy, which is a gross misrepresentation of of both sides of um, the equation uh, around the emerging geostrategic uh, conflicts between Eurasia and the Atlantic. But I do feel that America needs to rethink its place in the world. Indeed, Charles Kupchan, who I quoted earlier, I guess defending Joe Biden's exit, wrote in an earlier phase in his career in 2002, 2002, that's nearly 20 years ago, he wrote, as a matter of urgency, there you go, as a matter of urgency in 2002, Charles Kupchan, Kupchan wrote, America needs to begin to prepare itself and the rest of the world for this uncertain future. To wait until American dominance is already gone would be to squander the enormous opportunity that comes with primacy. America must devise a grand strategy for the transition to a world of multiple power centers now, while it still has the luxury of doing so. This is the challenge, central challenge of the end of the American era. And I think maybe the fallacy in that little argument is that America gets to choose and gets to devise the grand strategy for how the world will be, a world of multiple power centres will be, rather than getting to negotiate with the rest of the world. In February of 2020, I wrote a open letter to America on my blog the burning archive and i'll put a link in to this piece which is of its time and was a bit of a cry from the heart i'm not sure if i totally defend all of it now but it starts by saying to the citizens office holders and advocates of the united states of america your republic is breaking yet your empire holds on and the conceit of manifest destiny as the primal democracy, the greatest country on earth, and the envy of the world collapses. That may not have been entirely true then, 
but I think the fall of Kabul has certainly made that true. And the concluding paragraph of that post wrote, said this, The world sees this cancer in your divided government, the kind of thing I guess that Angelo Colavillo was talking about, and this derangement in the American mind, and the world knows your rule is coming to an end. The world knows you are not who you pretend you are. The world knows you are no longer a beacon of democracy and freedom in the world. The world knows you are not the home of the brave and the land of the free. The world knows you are a decaying empire in disguise. The world knows you are not the indispensable nation. It is time to wake up, America. It is time to shed your illusions. It is time to clean your own house. It is time to make America humble again. And there's nothing like a humiliation to make a country humble. Pride comes before a fall, they say. And in preparing for this podcast, I found a quote from the American theologian Reinhold Niebuhr from the first part of the 20th century. Reinhold Niebuhr, who lived from about 1890 to 1970, was the author of the famous serenity prayer that um, I guess is often, uh, you often used to see printed on people's walls, uh, walls um, uh, which read, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Perhaps a importantly relevant prayer for America right now. And Reinhold Niebuhr also wrote this, that one of the most pathetic aspects of human history is that every civilization expresses itself most pretentiously, compounds its partial and universal values most convincingly, and claims immortality for its finite existence at the very moment when the decay which leads to death has already begun. America's decay may not lead to death. It has an opportunity to renew. But to renew, it really must forsake global empire and make itself humble at last. Okay, so that brings us to the end of this uh, episode. Quite a long one, um, but I, I hope it's been an informative one because I've tried to not just babble on with my own personal views, but actually document some of the uh, ideas that are going on in America right now about uh, how they're responding to Afghanistan. I think just summarising the show, I'd say that I think Af- the the humiliation to use the word that is repeatedly used the humiliation of america in uh, afghanistan has provoked 
an imperial crisis of identity, uh, a, a crisis of ideas, not just the crisis of geopolitical strategy. And there's a lot in how America is responding that, to me, far, far away here in the southern part of Australia is a little bit frightening. Uh, the last thing I think the world wants is for America to launch a, a third world war against China, let alone against some poor marginal community to try to restore its uh, lost pride. But a more modest America is possible. And if America would just embrace perhaps the more limited vision of its traditions, then the international community, I'm sure, would welcome it with open arms to a multipolar world. Next week, I'm going to talk about uh, one last time about Afghanistan. And uh, rather than banging on about countries that I have no real connection with, I'm going to talk about how Australia is responding to Afghanistan and what, because after all, Afghanistan, Australia had troops in Afghanistan, so I guess Afghanistan is not only uh, a defeat for America, it's also a defeat for Australia. And there are questions, the, the performance, I guess, of America in recent times are, is, is raising questions in Australia about the, its American alliance. We've only just celebrated uh, the other day the 70th anniversary of the ANZUS alliance. And maybe, maybe it's time for Australia to think how it can perform a slightly different, have a different role in the world, in a multipolar world, um, just as when Singapore fell during World War II, it led Australia to rethink its relationship with the British Empire and to establish its strong alliance with America. So too, perhaps the fall of Kabul might lead uh, Australia to rethink its strategic relationships with coastal Eurasia. So uh, do uh, I'll put various links to some of the material I've referred to during the podcast in the show notes, and also I generally do a little slightly longer post with extra links on my website, theburningarchive.com. And I do hope you've enjoyed the show. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for hanging in there for quite a long show. And until next week, do remember, as Ezra Pound will say shortly to the music of J.S. Park, what thou lovest well will not be reft from thee. What thou lovest well remains, the rest is dross. What thou lovest well shall not be reft from thee. What thou lovest well is thy true heritage, whose world, or mine, or theirs, or is it of none? First came the scene, then thus the palpable Elysium, which were in the halls of hell. 
What thou lovest well is thy true heritage. What thou lovest well shall not be reft from thee.